The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we bring you a panel that we recorded live at Skepticon, the science and skepticism track of Convergence, which is a four-day science fiction and fantasy conference held every summer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Getting Away with Murder. I'm Desiree Shell, host of the Canadian radio show Science for the People, and I will be your moderator this evening. And because I am not sure how quickly your country deports people, I would like to publicly proclaim for the NSA that this panel is for entertainment purposes only. We are absolutely not counseling people as to the best ways to commit what is obviously a felony. Okay, good, good, okay. So our panelists today, we, are, we will start with Dr. Rubidium, also known as Ray Burke. Uh, she's a chemist that develops detection schemes for some common chemical culprits, drugs and explosives. She... She has also done time in a crime lab, uh, but now she does research full-time. And next we have Bug Girl, also known as Gwen Pearson. Uh, she's an entomologist by training, and she has done a small amount of forensic entomology consulting, but she gave that up early in her career because of the smell. <laughs> she now writes both online uh, and print versions of Wired magazine. And then we have Emily Fink. Uh, she is a forensic anthropologist by training, a museum educator by profession. She's worked with medical examiners to identify skeletal material until she realized that she preferred working with skeletons that were still contained within living people. <laughs> and last but not least, Amanda Leinbach. She's trained in forensic science with an emphasis on biology, and she hopes to one day have a job that allows her to spend most of her time in a lab testing various bodily fluids, which probably tells you more than you need to know about Amanda. <laughs> okay, so let's start out with the crime scene itself. Uh, can someone walk me through what actually happens at a crime scene? You step in through the yellow tape, and then what? A lot of paperwork. <laughs> yes, best answer ever. Uh, so it's not nearly as sexy as what they show on TV. Um, you don't show up in your uh, high heels and high very heel nicely black pressed boots. suit. Cleavage? Oh, lots yeah, yeah. of cleavage. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Hair just crazy everywhere. Yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. And you don't get to leave five minutes later, that's for <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of paperwork. The first thing you have to do, of course, is take pictures of everything. And while you're taking pictures, someone, of course, has to write down every single picture that's being taken and everything that's happening. So it is the most paperwork that you could ever imagine. Lots of documentation, yes. And there's always, there's usually somebody, there's a scene officer at the door who's recording every single person that comes in and out. Yep. If they're, if they're really running a, a proper tight ship. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of the cavalier attitude you see of just people strolling in from multiple entry points. 
No, you're gonna come. <laughs> you're gonna come in a single way. That's probably been a, a decided, um, and you're gonna go out that way. And so it's it's very controlled. Um, and just the documentation. They never show paperwork on TV because it's just not sexy enough. I think. <laughs> So, no, you, you've never done sexy paperwork? I have never done <laughs> sexy paperwork, but I'm hoping next week. So We could do a whole panel on just sexy paperwork. <laughs> so uh, how, uh, first of all, what kind of evidence are, are you looking to collect at the site, and how are you collecting it? I think maybe the biggest, um, especially with shows on TV, is this idea that you're going to collect anything and everything. And you're just not, because you're not garbage collectors. <laughs> you're going to have to make some decisions. And with those decisions come the possibility of a mistake. Um, but you're going to make informed decisions. You know, most crimes are pretty straightforward. There was a great skit on Mad TV um, that had, uh, you know, the whole kind of spoof of CSI where the CSI people showed up and the detectives were like rolling their eyes going, he already confessed. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to tell him how it happened based on reading the scene. And the detectives are like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I mean, I think that, that that's, that's what you get from television, and everything is this great mystery. And for the most part, it's not. It's not a great mystery. I mean, the stuff that you see on television, the fact that it's on television, is that it's outside the norm. Most crimes, interpersonal violence, is just that. It's interpersonal violence. You know exactly who the fuck just killed someone. <laughs> Probably because they said, I will kill you and then did it. <laughs> That's but, how not to get away with murder. Yeah, by the way. So write that down if you're taking notes. Um, but you have to make some tough calls on what you think is relevant and, and also it's limited to what the lab will accept and what they will analyze. They're not going to take everything because there's just a limit on you know, what you can actually work with. Um, you know, there are surfaces, so fingerprinting would be a good example, um, which is still a really a workhorse, um, at, you know, a technique of identifying suspects. Um, and there are some surfaces that are just, they're, they're so, you know, porous and they're so convoluted that you're like, I can't do, like Legos, the fact that weird surface on one side, you've got these, big raised dots and then depressions. If you're actually trying to get, you need a single flat impression from that, that side of a Lego would not be one that you would want to try to process. So there's a lot of those types of surfaces that you're like, you know what, I can't, I can't work with that. There's nothing we can do there. So kill people with Legos. So what I'm saying is kill people with Legos, no. But only the bumpy part of the Lego. <laughs> Don't touch the flat <laughs> Um, but even then, I mean, I think that there's, you know, you have to make decisions. And again, nothing is done in a vacuum, to use, to use that phrase, is that I think that's another myth of the show is, is that the scientists are the ones that are cracking things. <laughs> um, and the scientists are the ones that are, quote, solving cases. And that's not our job. That's the police. Right. As, as forensic scientists, your job is to represent the evidence as neutrally as possible you're just there to say what the evidence is and what you see and what you find and that is it you are not 
traipsing around talking to criminals and interviewing them and <laughs> running, running oh. around with a gun. I did not get that class in school. The I did not the gun class. And when I worked, you know, for for a forensic science unit in a police department, that was not my job. My job was to provide a level of technical expertise. And they have police for a reason. Anyone who's ever watched, you know, the CSI, all the CSI shows, have you ever watched and been like, what the fuck are the police there for? <laughs> right? Because you're like, well, seriously, why do we even bother? And that's probably the biggest, you know, one of the biggest fallacies. The, the scientists are there because you're providing a skill that the first responders and the detectives um, just don't have because they don't have that training. But I will say this too, is that for most crime, most crime is not violent by sheer number. It's property crimes and it's drug related. Is that who's doing the forensic, kind of basic forensic work, with, which include just collecting evidence and making sure it's stored properly and doing basic documentation, is gonna be what we call first responder, which is gonna be a patrol person, usually. And in some cases, a detective, if, it, if a detective has actually been assigned and then goes out to the scene. It's not gonna be an actual scientist that leaves the lab. Most forensic scientists are lab-bound. They're not going outside because the sun hurts their flesh. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. And I wanted to ask you guys to comment on the, the total bullshit way that they handle DNA on, in these TV shows because you don't get results. Oh, Look. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it only takes five minutes, right? Yeah. Only, yeah. Like, only takes five just... minutes, and we're still using plates. And you, and you, I'm sorry, I find, I find DNA uh, analysis boring. <gasps> this is usually, yes, that's the reaction I'm used to getting. I'm sorry. Um, it's very, very repetitive, because yeah. if you're a DNA yes. analyst, what you do is you're in a lab all day away from the sun, and you get a swab or a cutting from a swab and then you extract the DNA from that and you run it through not a gel. <laughs> not a gel. <laughs> so if anyone's watched the CSI you know, shows or any kind of Law & Order has done this, all the crime shows have done this, and you'll see a picture and they'll show bars in different positions, okay? Yeah, we, That's don't, we great. don't do that. We don't do that anymore. We actually run it that it looks like that where you see these bars come across. That technique went out with the mammoths? No. Um, no, I mean, that was definitely done in the 80s and I'd yeah, say into the it's early 90s. it's very hammer pants. Yes, hammer pants, exactly. Oh. <laughs> now we use capillary electrophoresis and so how the DNA analysis looks is actually like peaks coming out. And so I think Hollywood yeah. is just like, whoa, 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 that's not as interesting as just bars that match up or don't match up or right. don't match up. And that is a visual people are used to, so we're gonna yeah. stick with that even though that was like 1993. Right, it's more of like a colorful bar graph. Yeah. And nobody wants to see graphs on television, come on. Statistics, ugh. Well, and what I'm wondering is, so those, those DNA, that DNA evidence, how accurate are those tests? Like, is that enough to convict somebody with what you're gonna find at a crime scene? It can be. Um, but there was a really interesting case out of Los Angeles where they had a woman that was accused of murder and they found her DNA all over that damn crime scene. 
I mean, we're talking she ate, they found it under the fingernails of the victim, they found it on the doorknob to get in, I mean, they found it everywhere. Um, and they, they found a link and they said there was a motive and they had all this stuff and you're thinking, wow, if this was, if this was NCIS, her ass is grass. Um, the jury acquitted. And this was hard scientific evidence. So the prosecutor, I was watching, this was a dateline, and the prosecutor was like, what the what? <laughs> he did a really good, you know, little John impression right there. And, and the thing is, is then the DNA, what did it mean? And the defense attorney was able to show, like, so what? Our DNA was there. It doesn't mean, but it was under the fingernails. So what? <laughs> you know, that doesn't, uh, you know, whatever. So there's been those cases, but there have definitely been the opposite, where they've had people, Innocence Project, which is a great group of folks. There's been, you know, I, I want to say over 200 people now. That yeah, have, around that number. That have been ex exonerated on DNA evidence, so running something and saying, it wasn't you. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, so yeah, it can work. I mean, definitely, you have whole cases that are built on what you would call just the DNA evidence, especially when you come back with what's called a cold hit. So when you're entered into CODIS, does everyone know what CODIS is, or you've heard the, the phrase? So CODIS is the combined DNA uh, index. So it's a database. And um, in order to be entered into CODIS, there are very specific rules to have that information entered. And you can have, so you have, you know, your kind of DNA profile entered into CODIS, and then years later, you don't find a hit, right? And then years later, they keep running it, the DNA unit, even though it's a lot of technical stuff, and they do kind of the same thing over and over again. So you put in a th information, and then they'll keep running it against the database, because what do we know about databases? They change. They're only as strong or as weak as the data you enter into them. So eventually, maybe the person who committed an offense gets finally entered into a database. And so they keep running it, and they keep running it, and they keep running it, and finally, 15 or 20 years later, they get at what's called a cold hit. And they come back with a result. And maybe at that point, there isn't any what we would call kind of circumstantial evidence. So nobody actually said, I will kill you, bitch. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, no one overheard that. But they've got the DNA hit. That's a pure, what you would call kind of forensic evidence case. And those have definitely been successful. And they're usually successful. It was pretty rare that this LA case was not. That's why I think it really surprised people. So what we're saying is just because you left your DNA at the site, you're not busted yet. Um, can we talk about maggots? <laughs> what can and can they not tell us, Bug? Uh, well, there, there's a lot of uses for maggots at crime scenes. Um, one of the most useful things that they can do is they can show us where a partially decomposed body had an actual injury. So if I stab you um, in the stomach, the when flies show up, and I should say flies, blowflies are freaking amazing at how fast they find a body. They're absolutely amazing. I mean, within minutes of death, boom, blowflies, right there. Um, and the cool thing is the two compounds that summon them are called cadaverine 
and putrescine. <laughs> easy to remember. <laughs> also easy to notice. <laughs> There's no mistaking. Yeah. Um, and so what flies are looking for, um, your skin is really difficult for a maggot to eat through. So what flies want is an opening into your body where all the good juicy sh is. Um, and so typically flies will oviposit in eyes, nose, if the mouth is open. Um, the anus also is a point of entry, mm -hmm. um, genital openings. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is where you expect to see blowflies um, and, and evidence of insect activity on someone who, for example, um, is out in the middle of the woods and just dies. And, and there's no, nothing bad happens. They just die. Um, or someone who's alone in their house and they just die. <laughs> On the other hand, if I come across a, as one does, come across a perfectly decomposed body. Um, <laughs> as you do. Yeah. Um, and then I notice, though, that you have, for example, maggot activity on the hands. So maybe that's a defensive wound. Um, or there's maggot you know, activity in places where you should normally not have openings. That tells me that there was a wound there. Um, and then you can match that up with some of the forensic evidence that might also show um, damage to underlying tissues and structures. Um, and it can also be used to support things like we recovered a knife at the scene is, you know, so, so if, if the wound is kind of stabby looking, then you can, you can work with that. Um, That's a technical term. Stabby. stabby. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we're all about the technology. Um, the other piece of information that is most commonly gained from, from maggots is time of death. Um, and because maggots are, basically baby insects, baby flies, uh, and they grow at a really specific rate because they have, they're what are commonly called cold-blooded, but it's, we'll stick with that. Uh, and so their, their development rate is closely linked to the temperature. Uh, and you can create a really nice chart of how fast they grow at certain temperatures. And so if you have environmental data for where the body has been, you can basically work backwards in time from the age of the maggots and figure out, oh, this is probably the likely time when the person died because they are so very good at finding things almost immediately after death. Um, some of the really interesting problems are when what happened when someone tries to hide a body um, or when someone tries to um, wrap a body up and present prevent um, access of insects to the body um, and then you get into some really interesting cases where or the other really big issue is drug use so if you have a cocaine user um, that in this actually happened a cocaine user climbed up a tree and died um, as one does. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but the problem was the, when they looked at the, the maggot evidence on the body, um, the maggots basically said the person had actually died several days before, except that people had seen them walking around. So there was a problem. And it turns out when you put maggots on cocaine, they get jacked up too and they grow really fast. <laughs> Um, and so, so that's where all of the other pieces come in. So you need to know the toxicology of the body. You need to know all these other sorts of things. Um, there's, there's, it's really fascinating. The work on um, what happens when you put bodies in suitcases and car trunks is really fascinating. And I'll just let you know right now, if you ever end up sitting next to me on a plane, move. 
Um, because when I came on my way here, I was rereading some case studies. And so I'm reading on my iPad on the plane about um, severed pig heads in suitcases. Um, and, you know, if you, what happens when you put severed pig heads, pig heads in suitcases and then bury them and do these other things? And the person is like, what? <laughs> do not read pathology documents in front of people. That's what I. Yeah. I try not reviewed. to. I try. I try not to do that. It wasn't that bad. I mean, yeah. for us, it wasn't. That bad. Okay. So anyway, so yeah, the, the other one was a. Uh, um, actually, the one that really caused the most ruckus was a uh, an MRI. It was really fascinating MRI study of maggots in a body and how do maggots disperse within the body. And so I'm looking at these really interesting looking MRI pictures, and the person next to me is like. What is that? And I was like, you don't want to know. <laughs> so, no, really, I do want to know. You don't want to know. Okay, I'll tell you. Ah! <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's a really, there's a lot of art in it. It's not, because you're dealing with a living organism, there is not, it is not as hard-edged and as quantifiable as it can be with things like chemistry. And we'll be back with more of that after this brief message. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. All right, uh, what can we learn from skeletons at a crime scene? So how many people have seen Bones? Take, uh, okay, the show. Take. <laughs> the show. <laughs> so take everything you ever, every image ever on that show and throw it completely and totally out the window because that is not how skeletons work. That is not how forensic anthropologists work. And that's not how the Smithsonian works. So, <laughs> um, Forensic anthropologist is actually a very specific medical legal definition. Um, forensic anthropologists take the techniques from um, archaeology, from biological anthropology, and they apply it to solving crimes. So um, what you're trying to do is you're trying to identify a specific person and a specific way of death. So what does Bones do when she comes in? She looks at the top of someone's head that's sticking out of mud and goes, oh, it's a 32-year-old woman who's had two children and was killed by poison. <laughs> no. First of all, I have never met a forensic anthropologist who's been allowed out at a crime scene. Um, you you generally, you're, you, there are only something like 50 licensed forensic anthropologists in the country. I am not one of them. It takes um, seven years after getting your PhD to even be able to sit the exams. Um, it's a very intense process, and that's because what a, a board-certified forensic anthropologist primarily does is sit in court and say, this is this person. These are the marks on the bones for how they died. So 
I call myself a forensic anthropologist. I'm not board certified. I would never be called to court because I would be obliterated by the actual board certified anthropologist. Um, but what you can do is you can take that skeleton back to the lab. And skeletons do have differences. Um, my skull is going to look completely different from everyone else's on this panel. But what Bones does is she says, oh, this is a woman. And not so easy. Uh, what you do when you look at a skeleton is you look at it. Okay, do I know if it's a man or woman? Not really. So what I do is I then take rulers and I take calipers and I take measurements and I take angles and I put all of those measurements and angles into a piece of software and then it says, hmm, this is 70% likely to be a man of Caucasian origin. This is 72% likely to be a woman. <laughs> Yay! Okay, so I go, <laughs> I go look at who's missing. Well, I wouldn't. The police would. I, I, I put it into the paper. I put it into the, um, the, the yes, the paperwork, and then go here. Have some sexy paperwork. That's. <laughs> So, no, you're not, it's, you're never going to be able to look at a skeleton in the field and say, oh, I know who this is. This is Jeff from accounting. <laughs> no, no. Jeff from accounting has the exact same skeleton as Susie from accounting, according to the anthropologist in the field. According to the anthropologist in the lab, she can say, oh, yeah, this is definitely Susie. Because Susie has a different hip width, a different uh, lighter skeleton structure, and Jeff is still sitting in accounting. <laughs> but, but what I actually did was I, um, and what most people who are called forensic anthropologists do, is every skeletal material that comes to a medical examiner has to actually be identified as, is this human? And that's the first thing you ask. The first thing you ask isn't, how was Jeff from accounting murdered? It's, am I dealing with a human skeleton or am I dealing with a sheep skeleton? Human skeletons, sheep skeletons, with the exception of the head and the hooves, their torsos look kind of the same. And it's really difficult to tell them apart for most medical examiners who are used to dealing with bodies with flesh on them. Um, so I would go, oh, I think that's human. Okay, great. That is a human. Second of all, is this a new human? Is this old human remains or is this young human remains? If it's older than 50 years, it's no longer the forensic anthropologist's area. It now is the archaeologist's area and it moves out of forensic anthropology. I then go, okay, is this a crime? That's the hard part and that's the one that most forensic anthropologists are going to spend most of their time looking at. Is who is this? Is there any evidence at all that they were killed? And most of the time, there's not going to be that much evidence. Uh, the likelihood of, A, it being violence that is unidentified, and B, being violence that's unidentified that doesn't look like something like a car hitting you or like a knife going in to your soft tissue. I can't see that at all. I'm sorry. Forensic anthropology, not nearly as sexy as bones, but really, really cool. <laughs> okay, so how about things like trace evidence and pattern evidence? How is that different than what we see in the TV shows? 
well, it's it's much like the forensic anthropology. It's not nearly as conclusive as what they would show on TV. Like, haha, we have this shoe print, and look, we found the murderer's shoes. <laughs> they're they're an exact match. That is not how it works at all. Um, and in fact, well, pattern evidence especially is uh, a bit under attack in the uh, forensic community right now. Um, I love all of the articles that everybody likes to write pointing out how um, unscientific it is. Like, we know. We know. We know. We've known no. for a Stop long time. Stop telling us that. <laughs> uh, the best that you can do, um, so pattern evidence. What is pattern evidence? It's everything from shoe prints to fingerprints to, hey, there was this ripped piece of paper left at the scene and we found what looks like the other half of this ripped piece of paper in the suspect's apartment or car, whatever. Tool things marks. like that. I put tool marks in tool that marks. category. Yep. Yeah. Um, very helpful in things like break-ins. Mm -hmm. um, as Ray mentioned, it's not always violent crimes. There's lots of burglaries that you need to look at. Um, you know, did they use this screwdriver to jimmy the window open? Things like that. Um, and most of the best that you can do is like, well, it's, you can use it as an, ex, an ex exclusionary tool. So you can say, well, no, that definitely wasn't this crowbar that did that. There's, there's no way. There, there's no matching at all. But saying, yes, it was this specific crowbar that made this mark, you can't really do. You can say, well, maybe. Uh, Ballistics would also be, you know, I love that. That would also be considered as a tool mark. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so when you see on the show they fire into usually either gel Oh, a yes. huge well of water, and they're like lands and grooves, and it's this. That's still pattern evidence. pattern evidence, right? So, right, yes, that's a fun one to talk about. <laughs> um, I really enjoy the ballistics pattern evidence. That's that's something that's kind of fun to me. Um, but it's still at best you're going, well, these lines sort of match up, so it could be from this gun, uh, but you can't say. You know, yes, absolutely, this gun fired this bullet because you don't know how many bullets could have been fired in between what you found with the bullet that you found and then when you found the gun. Um, there's all sorts of things that can happen to change the patterns that are left. Like you could shove a screwdriver down the barrel of a gun yeah. that you've just yeah. shot someone with. If you're a Allegedly. smart criminal. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> Good pro tip there. I know. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Okay, so let's let's talk about some particularly creative ways that either people have killed or could kill someone. <laughs> Starting at the left. Um I think sometimes to really get away what what I've seen is people who've managed to, to quote get away with murder have done it by a combination of dumb luck and laziness on the part of investigators. Yes. Um, I mean, they just got lucky, if you want to call it luck. They've managed to commit an offense, and they've done it in a way that, you know, one would be, and maybe, again, I should say, too, is how long they've gotten away with it. Getting away with it for 10 years, 5 years, 20 years, your entire life, that's, that's different. So how long can you get away with it? Um, but there's been, you know, some cases where, well, even in Los Angeles, where I'm from, Natalie Wood, which was, you know, quite a famous actress, um, that's been reclassified by the medical examiner as, as being kind of unknown to being now, or she was classified now as being homicide. 
um, or, or being reclassified as unknown, which opens the door for a homicide investigation from an accident. Um, so that happened a long time ago. So that is, you know, that was a boating accident, or at least we thought it was a boating accident. Was it? Um, so, you know, that kind of thing of stumbling on kind of you, you stumble into things. I almost think that when you try to over plan um, or you try to plan the perfect murder, the fact that you've planned it, how did you do that? How, how would you plan that? Doing research? How did you do the research? Did you Google it from your laptop? Because <laughs> probably the fastest growing division of forensic science would be computer forensic science. They're going to look right away at your search record. They're going to get a subpoena for your cell phone record. I was never there. What are you talking about? That dump site where you found her body or his body? I don't know what you're talking about, really, because your cell phone bounced off the tower that came right over there. So all of that kind of stuff. Or really, because you Googled best dump site in Minnesota. <laughs> How do I kill my ex-boyfriend? <laughs> So uh, all of you who put this panel in their ske their digital yeah. schedule. That's right. So all of that kind of stuff. That was a mistake. Um, how do you do the research? Um, there's been some great examples of cases where people have been like, well, why did you search arsenic poisoning? Why did you search this map area where we just so happened to find her body. I mean, that kind of stuff is almost the more planning you do. And also the cover-up and the cleanup um, seems to be, you know, a lot of area. Can you get it clean enough? Can you do a good enough cover-up? Um, and the cases where people have, quote, gotten away with it is more because that's a, almost a legal definition of maybe people knew you totally did it. You totally did it. Um, we're on the 20th year of OJ. <laughs> you totally did it. That's different than legally you can prove it. That's a very different bar. The DNA evidence, and there's a lot of forensic shenanigans that went on on storing evidence and properly handling it in that case. Um, but again, proving it legally and, and saying around the water cooler, totally did it. That's a different, those are very different bars, or at least they should be. Um, so I think a lot of times when you hear about these cases where people have gotten away with it, in quotation marks, it's not really that they've been this criminal mastermind. It's that people just couldn't get enough, whatever their threshold is, whether the district attorney is saying the threshold is to file charges for murder or manslaughter and whatever degree that is, isn't being met. That's a very different criteria. So if you want to get away with murder, kill the person you're interested in killing with a law enforcement agency that has a history of being incompetent, <laughs> um, with a, a set of a, you know lawyers in the area, county lawyers or you know district attorneys that are very gun shy. That would be my. <laughs> And that's not a forensic science thing. That's just, that's more of a legal issue. How to kill someone with a banana. 
<laughs> so one of the fun things about my gig at Wired, although also a little creepy, is that a now <laughs> I haven't even told you is that I murder people with bananas. What? <laughs> anyway. So uh, <laughs> is that I get a lot of emails from authors and it's so cool. Oh my God. It's like, oh my God, these people follow me on Twitter. I've been reading their books for years. Now they're emailing me. <laughs> but what they want to know is how to kill people um, and, and how, or how to make a GMO insect that takes over the world. And, and so really interesting things. Um, but one of the most interesting questions I got was, could you actually kill someone with a banana? And what they want to... <laughs> Wait for it. <laughs> Wait for it. Okay, sorry. So, so, and this is a chemical story, so you should like it. Okay. So, be alarm pheromone. When uh, you're near a beehive and a bee stings you, the bee releases an alarm pheromone. Uh, and that summons her sisters in, like something is here, something is bad, you need to come sting it and, well, die, but that's a different story. Um, and the, the chemical that they use is isopentyl acetate. That is also the chemical that is in banana extract, and you can buy it at your grocery store. It is in most bananas, although in smaller quantities. Um, and so the question was, could you cover someone with a banana smoothie that happened to be allergic to bees and kill them? <laughs> um, and the best part of this was I went to my beekeeping friends um, and there's a national beekeeping list and said okay so this has been proposed do you think this is legit or not have any of you been beekeeping eating bananas and had anything happen and so for the last week beekeepers all over the United States have been waving bananas in front of their hives <laughs> For science. <laughs> um, which, sadly, and actually there's one guy who was like, this is so interesting, I think I'm going to try and get a paper out of it. Um, <laughs> because that's what academics do. Uh, and so basically, the consensus was, if you get the banana right up next to the hive, the bees will alert on it, and they kind of fly out and look at you. Um, one of the things I couldn't get anybody to do, no idea why, was to do it maybe with an Africanized hive. Um, <laughs> but there is somebody who's thinking about it. <laughs> Um, and the other thing that we didn't do was get some of the actual um, concentrate. So I think if you really wanted to do this in a novel, you would need to get about a quart of banana concentrate or the banana extract, which would probably show up on your purchase records that you had bought a large amount of banana extract. Because you walked into a store, bought it, you were on CCTV, and then paid by it with a credit, credit card. card. <laughs> or maybe you bought it on Amazon, because you could get it in bulk. And you have Amazon Prime, so free shipping! <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, so in theory, you could have a banana smoothie and, and dose it with all this extra extract and then take your, your victim out for a walk to the bee yard and trip, throw the smoothie on them, and then the bees will attack, and then you're like, I don't know what happened! <laughs> this actually reminds me, I was having this conversation with somebody last night, and they were What? <laughs> right. As you do at Convergence... 
Um, and, uh, you know, this kind of chemical, almost chemical warfare is what you're talking about, but it's very targeted to a person. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one idea, and this is this has actually been a CSI episode and it happened in real life, is the person had a peanut allergy. <laughs> and the person knew that. And so they sent them something that was coated in peanut oil. Um, but they were dumb, which most criminals are, and the person could see that it was coated in some kind of weird oily substance <laughs> and said, I'm not going to touch that because I don't know what that is. Um, but that kind of targeted, if the more information you knew about a person, you know, if you, if you knew they were diabetic, type 1 diabetes, and they used insulin, um, and you replaced the insulin with water, they injected it, and you're like, ha ha, because um, you're evil. Um, but the more you knew, you know, if they had a certain deficiency or they had, a, you know, a sensitivity, you could really target them. And that kind of targeted precision work means you're going to need to know a lot about them. But that also means that you know a lot about them and you've picked kind of the ultimate weapon. But that also reveals what? The person who did it knew an awful lot about them. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Okay, creative death and go. So the way I would kill someone and get away with it would go along, along the lines of Ray's um, comments about you're not actually getting away with it, but you're not legally in trouble for it. I would probably kill someone with a car. It is quite hard to make someone serve time for a vehicular death. Oops. Oh, no. Vehicular manslaughter. Oh, I'm going to have to wear an ankle bracelet for a little bit. But, hey, I got away with murder. Also, I would probably be an upper-class white person doing that. <laughs> Who you are really does make a difference. Yes. Who you are, what district you live in, what you know, state you live in, who um, your, your family is, what your, who your family is—all of these non-science things um, really impact. There's been some great research on this. What charge? Yeah, like, you are under. I would get a less charge than a black man hitting someone with a car, even if it was the same. I ran a red light on a cell phone and hit someone with a car. And there's been That's some great criminology science. studies on that. And so that is the subjective part. That is, you know, the if you want to call it the non-science part, but all of that plays into no, it. There's a, it's science. It is it's, science. Yeah, yeah. it's statistics of that. But I think all of the, we can't really, with forensic science and, and the criminal system, is that... It, it, you cannot, it's the one probably area that we have this uncomfortable relationship between science, hard, what we would call hard science, and the, quote, soft sciences. And, you know, when you come into court, you're supposedly giving, you know, this kind of, I'm the scientist, I'm going to give, you know. But the charge the person is faced with, whether it's manslaughter or murder, which level of murder, which level of manslaughter, the fact that have you taken a plea, have you not taken a plea, all of that kind of stuff comes into play. Okay, so I am very interested in Amanda's because unlike these women, you seem very nice. <laughs> so the, these, uh, these people are great. I'm feeling very uncomfortable up here. <laughs> Never I only use turn my, my back on all y'all again. So what 
would you do to get away with murder? You chose to sit in the middle, by the way. I I'm know. just saying. Honestly. Honestly. <laughs> uh, what would I choose? Um, I think, I don't know that I would get away with it. I gotta say, um, but I think I would want to go out in a blaze of glory. Um, I was and, wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> and and use all of the questions that I've been asked about how to get away with murder. Uh, let's see. There's the if I used an icicle and stabbed someone with it, then there wouldn't be a murder weapon left when it melted. Yeah, you can still figure that out. Like, <laughs> there are stabby wounds. <laughs> there was the... So, I know when you murder someone, especially, you know, if, it's, if there's blood that gets anywhere, you know, that's something that can be easily detected. What if I covered the area in pig's blood? <laughs> Where the hell are you getting the pig's blood? And, and, and that's going to look a little suspicious if you cover everything in pig's blood. You bought it at Vons on your credit card, and you're on Vons CCTV. It's awesome. <laughs> you go to Costco, and you're like, do you have buckets of blood? <laughs> you might as well wave. Just go. <laughs> just pushing your cart of blood out, yeah. But what, but what if you just say, it's for science? <laughs> I needed to cover this place in blood. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and also we can detect the human blood that's there with the animal blood, just FYI. But that would be fun. I'd like to throw a bunch of pig blood around. That'd be cool. Uh, and then there was the, all right, so you've killed the person with your, with your icicle. You've covered the area in pig blood. But you've got this body. How are you going to get rid of that? There's all sorts of interesting questions about that. But the most recent one that I've gotten is, all right, so I bury the body, and I do it nice and deep. Oh, that's a bad idea for one thing, because that's a lot of work, and it's going to look like a grave, by the way, guys. We're going to find that, too. But if I do it, I dig it nice and deep, and then I put a dead animal on top of it. They're only going to dig down until they get to the animal, and they'll be like, well, shit. <laughs> No. <laughs> right, Emily? <laughs> If you're burying an animal nice and deep that's big enough for a human grave, you have some other problems. <laughs> so that's the blaze of glory I'd go out in. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know where to go with this, so I'm just going to do some audience questions. Um, no, <laughs> Remember, this is recorded. <laughs> so you're asking for a friend. <laughs> you're listening to Science for the People, and this is Getting Away with Murder, a panel that we recorded live at Skepticon, the science and skepticism track of Convergence. And we'll be back with more of that after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. So the question is, Dexter... 
discuss, which isn't a question. So the question is, could you, <laughs> could you possibly uh, get away with that many murders with that method and still get away with it? And I would actually say the Sweeney Todd method would be slightly more effective than the yes. Dexter method. Yeah. Again, you're also trafficking on the idea that this person had inside knowledge that they were actually going to be sent you know, they could control almost the course of an investigation, which you, you know, the, the average murderer isn't going to have. This person was in a very unique position of power and, and was able to manipulate everyone around them. And that is not the situation of most criminals. So and it also, unique. it also plays on the idea that everyone, that someone is doing everything from beginning to end in a crime scene, which is completely not true. All four of us would be working on completely different areas, completely different departments, and completely different hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you had a friend that was stabbed. Yeah. And then the uh, perpetrator came back three days later. Okay. And then did a shooting on a corpse. <laughs> so that, you know, the medical examiner, and I've been to my fair share of autopsies, you have wounds that were definitely bleeding because the person was alive when you stabbed them. But then when you shot them, they were very, very dead. <laughs> so for a medical examiner, that's like... That's nothing. That's like literally like, okay, so the guy was stabbed and then a couple days later, I mean, it would, it would literally, wouldn't even. You, um, bone fractures differently when it's dead. Uh, as if you shot someone, none of you shot someone. Right. Um, three days after they're dead, that shooting wound is going to look very, very different from if you shot them in the head while they're alive. It's going to shatter more. You're not going to get the blood staining in the same way on the inside of the skull. And it's, it's any... Where were they shot, by the way? That, that, were they shot in the head? I am assuming so. And were they right-handed or left-handed? I don't Good know question. that. Um, because that's also going to yeah. be what they look at is... I've seen his work a million times. He supplied glass daggers that I used to, su used to sell in dealer's room. That's a classic yeah. uh, Agatha Christie. I mean, that was one of, you know, Hercule Poirot is, do we know if he was left or right-handed? That's an amateur mistake, but people mm -hmm. make it, especially this person wow. doesn't seem as if maybe they really knew him. If they said, yeah. I'm going to assume he's right-handed because I'm right-handed, so I'm going to put the gun in his right hand or that he's going to fire it and it's going to go from... The angle's always going to be wrong. Yeah, the always. angle's going to be wrong, the handedness right. is going to be wrong, and so that, I mean, all of those kinds of things, and also... Three days later? Yeah. <laughs> the question was, how well could pigs dispose of a body, which we've yeah. seen in Hannibal and Deadwood and several other shows. If you have pigs that are habituated to eating human remains, yeah. they'll happily go for it. Um, they won't generally completely obliterate the bones because if you have a set of pigs, they're used to being fed soft tissue. Um, but they will chew on them to the point that it might be more difficult to identify who they are, how they were killed. Um, but that you could possibly do. Yeah. And, Except you still have pigs as evidence. Yeah. I was going to say, there's, there's actually some really terrible accidents almost every year yeah. where mm -hmm. someone will fall into um, a pig pen and be consumed or, or really seriously hurt. Mm -hmm. So now we're all scared of banana smoothies and pigs? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Legos. Legos. And Legos. And Legos. <laughs>
the, the question is, Breaking Bad, dissolving bodies in acid. Can you identify somebody if you dissolve them in acid? Answer is, it really, takes a really long time, and it's really hard to dissolve someone in acid, unless you chop them up in little bitty pieces. Yeah, there's, there was a good case in California where a woman who owned an agricultural company, a good case, sorry. <laughs> Interesting case. Well, I've, uh, where she put her husband in a huge, you know, industrial size vat of acid, but she put the entire corpse in acid. And two weeks later, you know, because her husband was missing, um, the police were like, hey, this is a rental facility that you rented under your employee's name with a credit card of your own. We're going to look at it. Oh, look, what's this fat? And they opened it and they were like, that's totally a body. <laughs> <laughs> so a whole body, you know, we, we talked about this last night, is you really want to maximize surface area. So you need to chop that body up into like stew steak. Oh, right, and and boil it, boil it, yeah. yeah. Probably, I would, I would go more with a, a nice base, hot base. Mm. Yeah, but that's Lye. my personal Plus, you get soap. <laughs> <laughs> the question was, what was the most interesting case you worked on, or the one that made you laugh the most because of how stupid the murderer was? Actually. A lot of people don't realize this, that, that the biggest use of forensic entomology is actually food um, and stored products. And uh, so there's about a million cases every year where somebody's like, there's a fly in my, ma in my Happy Meal, you know. And so one of the big pieces of that is figuring out the provenance of the fly. Um, how did it get there? When did it get there? And so... It, what, many cases just are non-starters because if you try and show me um, a maggot that is supposedly living on a burger that just came off, you know, a 300-degree grill, hello, um, you don't get fully grown maggots on things that just came off the grill. That's that's somebody put that there. Um, if you have an egg, maybe that's possible, but that also means that you left your hamburger sitting out somewhere. Um, so the case that I thought was the most interesting that I worked on, um, which has already gone to trial and stuff so I can actually talk about it, and it was also a really long time ago, um, was a particular brand of honey-coated peanuts. Um, there was a guy that was sitting in his living room and was eating honey-coated peanuts and um, found a, be a beetle in it and freaked out, like completely freaked out and jumped up and he had just had abdominal surgery. <laughs> So you can connect the dots there. Um, and so the question was, well, my question first was, dude, it's a beetle. You know, but still, you know. Uh, and so the question was, did the beetle fly in, which was the the, com the food company was like, the beetle flew in and landed in, and, and it's not our beetle. But the problem was, it was a honey-roasted beetle. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Which are my favorites. <laughs> yeah. And and I was like, bonus protein. Yeah. But no, no. So it was a really easy case. Um, and so that, but that happens all the time. There's some other really interesting ones. Um, a really common one that comes through is um, tomato juice. It comes in those little jars. And when you open the jar, it goes, 
you know, and there's like, that's a suction. And so what happens is if at the bottling plant it's really messy and they spill tomato juice on the outside of the jar, then flies will come along and lay eggs on the outside of the jar and that suction, when you open it, sucks the eggs and the maggots into the juice. Um, you are never going to drink tomato juice. Let me just tell you right now, I haven't eaten a pickle in 15 years. <laughs> the things that I have seen cannot be unseen. Um, so, so that's something where you have a really plot, you know, there's a reason why the insects were in the juice, but it's actually a pretty benign reason, and it's, it's, it happened after the thing left the facility, so actually the bottler is not liable for that. Um, so it's questions like that that are just sort of working backwards and figuring out, okay, how did this thing get there and what sort of physical evidence can we have? Um, so I, I won't talk about my cases because they could still be right. adjudicated. And I don't, you know, it's just not professionally ethical. But um, definitely there's been some cases where you're like, wow, that was stupid. Um, so there was one case where a per- this was um, Florida. Um, you can pretty much stop there, I think. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the victim was found in a Rubbermaid container that was then, um, besides, you know, the, the kind of snap-on lid, then was, you know, like, you know, three pieces of duct tape were wrapped all the way around. The body itself was wrapped in kind of a tarp, Right. Um, well, they were like, gosh, how did you find me? Well, because you went to Home Depot and you purchased a Rubbermaid container, a roll of duct tape, a tarp <laughs> on a credit card. Um, and Home Depot is one of the, the retailers that actually keeps video um, almost indefinitely, at least a year, because they have terabytes full of servers. Um, and so it wasn't really that difficult. And then they bought other supplies at a, like a Kroger's and they used their discount card. <laughs> and then they were like, but that wasn't me. Really? Cause they had your discount card and we have video and it looks kind of like you. That kind of, that was like, wow. Yeah. Um, my favorite was, okay, the great thing about medical examiners is they're used to getting specimens with flesh on them. So they're not always great about identifying skeletons. Um, I had a medical examiner have a bottle, a bag of bones that came in. Um, the primary way the medical examiner gets bones is some guy finds a bunch of bones out in the field, freaks out, they turn out to be cattle bones. Um, and that's 90% of all bones ever and the other probably 9.9% is dog bones, sheep bones, things like that. But this one happened to have um, little, little tiny bones that he thought might be fetal bones. Um, But human fetal bones are very cartilaginous, don't preserve well, and it was very unlikely that they would really be fetal bones. So he brings us back. For me to look at and the the skeleton has these giant giant hip bones it turns out it was a cane like a big cane toad <laughs> like no not not a baby cane toad 
unless this baby had some pretty advanced musculature for jumping. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all we have time for. You can find links to Skepticon and all today's panelists on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And since you're there, please do click the links to Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, so that you can keep up with show news, and to iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show or leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. 